So we pick up today, and let me remind you that uh, the backdrop here, we read again uh, today the, the passage that we looked at last week and uh, added a few more verses coming to the end of the chapter. But here, as we see, Paul is speaking to Peter, and he's reminding Peter, the apostle Peter, of certain truths that Peter knew, but because he had become intimidated, he just sort of wasn't uh, faithful to what he knew to be the case. And so Paul is reminding him that the gospel, um, it, it puts everyone on a level playing field. And so um, the truth of the gospel is that all men, whether Jew or Gentile, are equally dead in their sins, and all will be equally justified through faith in Christ. Now, the core of Galatians is an exposition of justification by faith in Christ. And as I said, Paul is going to come to that when he gets to the third chapter. Um, and we, we, will, we will go there and go into a, a deep exposition, but I want to just give you a little sort of a preview of where we will be focusing a lot of our attention as we resume our study in Galatians. And it, it has to do with this, this teaching, this doctrine of justification by faith. And I want to quote to you from John Stott. John Stott was a... Um, British evangelical leader who, uh, a great sort of a Christian statesman. But what he says here um, is you could, you could find many, many of the great Bible expositors and preachers over the ages would, would say exactly the same thing. So he's kind of representative of that uh, evangelical voice out there. He said, no one has understood Christianity who has not understood the doctrine of justification by faith. So what he's talking about here is how this is really central to the gospel. And um, as he goes on, he says, if the doctrine of justification is central to the Christian life, it is vital that we understand it. And, and this is true. So then he says, what does it mean? Uh, justification is a legal term borrowed from the law courts it is the exact opposite of condemnation. To condemn is to declare somebody guilty. To justify is to declare one not guilty, innocent, or righteous. In the Bible, justification, or to justify, refers to God's act of unmerited favor by which he puts a sinner right with himself, not only pardoning or acquitting their sin, but accepting them and treating them as righteous. Now, as I said, Paul is going to, he's going to fully dive into this as we come to the third chapter, but the reason I'm bringing it up here is because in verse 16, he reminds Peter of this great truth that Peter knew but had uh, compromised with because of his own uh, fear of rejection by the, the leadership in Jerusalem. So, um, We'll come back and, and we'll really dig deep into that theme. But today I want to walk us through verses 15 through 21, and then we're going to come back and we're going to concentrate uh, most of our time on verse 20, where Paul says, I have been crucified 
with Christ. So let me pick up in verse 15, and there Paul says for, uh, again, speaking to Peter, he says, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus, even we, Jews, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. So Paul is, remember, he's talking to Peter publicly here in Antioch, and he's telling them these things. Now, the interesting thing, if you think about this, Peter would have heard this exact message from Jesus himself. So Peter uh, was there when somebody asked Jesus, what can we do to do the work of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Now, for Peter at the time and the other apostles, when Jesus said that, that was, that was pretty, pretty revolutionary. They, they didn't, at that point, they didn't understand the function of the law, that the law was never going to save anybody. They didn't understand that. But Jesus came bringing that message and that message became clearer and clearer um, with the, uh, the descent of the Spirit and the, the apostles going out and preaching. And so Paul is, is re- reminding Peter of things that he already knew, things that he would have heard from Jesus himself. But then he says in verse uh, 17, he says, But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, speaking as a Jew, we ourselves are also found sinners... Is Christ, therefore, a minister of sin? Certainly not. Now, see, this is some of the slander that was coming against Paul. Because for a Jew, as, as he said, the Jew, in the Jewish mind, the Jews were, were not sinners. The Gentiles were sinners. But the reality was, of course, the Jews were sinners too. They just didn't realize it or want to admit it. But in order to be saved by Christ, they had to admit that they were sinners, and so some people were twisting what Paul was saying and saying, oh, Paul, Paul wants to make you a greater sinner in order that you can be saved. And Paul says, certainly not. That, that's not what I'm saying at all. The fact of the matter is we are great sinners. What happens when we come to Jesus is we realize it, even if we hadn't realized it before. And then he says, for if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Paul is saying, if I was going around preaching that in order to love Jesus, you'd have to become a greater sinner. He said that I would be making myself a transgressor. Paul is denying that charge, that he was teaching people um, because we're sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so then let's just sin all the more so we can get all more, all, all, uh, we can get more grace. Now, these kinds of things that he touches on right here, he elaborates on these things in Romans chapters 6 and 7. So if you want to spend some time this week and get a little deeper into the things that Paul is saying here, if you read Romans 6 and 7, you'll get kind of the, the deeper uh, explanation of, of certain things that he's just touching on here. But he says in verse 19, he says, For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. You see, the whole problem with the Jew was they they could not get in their heads that their relationship with God was not going to be based upon the law. They kept trying to interject the law into the picture somehow. They had such uh, a warped view of the law that they, they wanted to make it part of the salvation package, but Paul is just saying, no, it has, it has 
no part. And he explains that, no, it's actually uh, through the law that I died to the law so I could live to God. No, the law doesn't help me. It only condemns me. But in condemning me, if I understand the proper uh, work of the law, it shows me that I can't save myself and it pushes me to the Savior. And so it kills me in one sense, but then it, it, it brings me to life through faith in Christ. And so then he goes on and he says this in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul is explaining to them, no, this is how the Christian life is lived. It's not lived by going back under the law. It's lived by Christ living in me. And then he says this in verse 21, I do not set aside or make void or frustrate the grace of God For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So you see, what what Paul is saying here is it's it's either or. You You can't have it both ways. You can, and again, in Romans, he elaborates on this. You can't mix grace and law. You're either saved by law or you're saved by grace. And, of course, his whole point is you can't be saved by law. So the law doesn't save you. The law is not a factor in what God has done through Christ. Christ saves us apart from the law. And and so that's what he's going to um, elaborate on more more fully, as I said, when when we move into the future. But but in verse 20, that's where I want to concentrate. Here in verse 20, he tells us basically the function of the law, and he tells us, how to live the Christian life. So the function of the law is um, to show us our sin and to point us to the Savior. And also, um, the law shows us our guilt that brings about our death. And so he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Why was Christ crucified? Christ was crucified for sin. Whose sin? wasn't his sin. Jesus never sinned. He was crucified for our sins. And so when Jesus died on the cross, effectively, we were being nailed to the cross with him. We were, we were dying for our sins, but we didn't have to die ourselves. Christ died for us. So we have been crucified with him and having died to our sin life, we now live a new life and we live that new life through him. Now, a couple of things I want you to think about. First of all, I want you to notice that Paul uses the past tense here, that I have been crucified with Christ, past tense. And this is important to realize because we have to understand that this is not a prescription for some deeper spiritual life that we are to strive uh, to attain to be truly holy. Uh, it's, it's not a prescription for that. It's rather a description of something that has happened to every single person who has put their trust in Christ. Now, I am saying this for a specific reason, and here's the reason. In the church, and there's a certain uh, 
way of thinking among some Christians, and, and they, they think and they talk and they write books about uh, what they call the crucified life. And they, they do that based upon uh, not just this passage, but primarily this passage right here. And the crucified life is, um, ironically, the crucified life, if you really analyze it and see what they're saying, it's a life where you work harder at you know, dying to yourself so you can be more spiritual and more holy. But the problem is that's not what Paul is talking about here. So for those who think that way or those who have written books on that subject, they're actually interpreting the passage in the exact opposite way of Paul, and, uh, Paul intended it to be understood. Because Paul is not saying the crucified life is something that you have to keep working at, that you ultimately finally crucify yourself. Paul is saying, I have already been crucified, which means I have already died. You see, that's the truth. We, when we come to Christ, we, we have died. We enter into his death. The death that he died, literally, we die spiritually. So the old life is dead. We've died to the old life, and there's no need for the law to come along and try, uh, you know, to, to reform. Of course, what do we know about the law in relation to people? Well, the law only applies to living people. Once you're dead, the law no longer has any authority over a person. That's what Paul is saying. I'm crucified with Christ. So remember, the Galatians are wanting to go back under the law. Paul says, no, you're you're dead to that already. The law has no application to you. you. You died. That's not the way to live this new life. And for those that mistakenly think that there is this deeper spiritual life through this, you know, I'm living the crucified life, uh, Paul would say, no, you're, you're incorrect. What we need to do is, like he said in Romans 6, we need to consider ourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God through faith in Christ. And as he goes on to say, then it's, it's Christ living in me. That's the key to everything. You see, the key to spiritual health and victory and progress is not I have to try harder. I have to be more rigid and strict about these laws and so forth. No, the key is recognizing that all of that has been dealt with. And now I just, I'm, I'm now just letting Christ live his life through me. It really simplifies it. So if we keep the context in mind, like I said, we understand that what Paul is saying here really, and and it applies to the Galatian problem, is that the law is absolutely powerless to save us, and it makes really no contribution at all to our salvation. Not only can it not save us, it, it it doesn't even play any role except to show us we need a Savior. That's the whole purpose of the law. Show us we need a Savior. Later in Galatians, Paul will say that. It's our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Once it leads us to Christ, the law's work is done. So the Galatians had already come to Christ. They were in a relationship with Jesus. 
And now, through the influence of these false teachers, they're wanting to go back under the law. Paul's saying, what are you doing? And actually, he says to them, as we'll read as we go into the next chapters, at a certain point, he says, who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you? Who, who has convinced you of this ridiculous idea that you have to go under the law? You're already at the ultimate place. You're in a relationship with God. You're already in that place where, where you're, you're connected to him. This, this is the you know, this is where God intended it all to go. Why would you latch on to this other thing that could never take you there in the first place? And actually for them, it was taking them back rather than moving them forward. So I have been crucified with Christ. For us, we need to understand that we died with Christ When Christ died on the cross, we died. And now here's what we do. We consider that to be true. Romans 6 says that we reckon the old man to be dead. And the word reckon means to consider it or to account it to be the case. So when I am tempted, when sin comes my way, I just look at it and say, I'm crucified with Christ already. I'm dead. And those things have no place in, uh, obviously, in the life of a dead man. So there's the recognition that this is a, a done deal. It's already happened. Crucified with Christ, past tense. But then Paul says, and Christ lives in me. You see, this is the Christian life. The Christian life is Christ living in me. And now listen closely. That's the Christian life, Christ living in me. Anything that claims to be Christianity that doesn't have as its central component Christ himself living in you, that's not Christianity. Now, why do I say that? I say that because there are millions of people in churches all across the country and actually all around the world who are in churches and who have, you know, some kind of belief or understanding, uh, you know, that Christ is the Savior and so forth, but they don't have Christ living in them. They've never been told that that's what Christianity is. Christianity is, is Christ living in you. They still think that, that Christianity is, well, I, I go to church faithfully, or I tithe faithfully, or I do my best to, to keep the, these commandments. I mean, I've even had people tell me, in, you know, maybe asking somebody the question, well, what, what is Christianity? And they, they say things like this, well, Christianity is just doing your best to keep the Ten Commandments. The, a lot of people think like that. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is nothing less than the life of God in the soul of man. That's what it is. You see, that's why I've been saying week after week, this is, this is something that's so radical. It's so revolutionary. And some of you have had this experience, and I had this experience. You know, I went to church. I, I sat in church week after week. I came to a point in my life after all my crazy wild stuff that I did, realizing that, you know, not only is this a dead-end street, but realizing that I'm a sinner and I need some help because uh, nobody really had to come and tell me I was going to hell. I already knew that. But I didn't want to go to hell. 
And so I was hoping there was some way out of it. So I went to church. And I thought that that was it. And so I went to church. And then I got involved in church. And then I was doing the things that my church leaders were telling me to do. But I, I never had any relief. I never had any deliverance. I never had any real change or transformation in my life. I just went from uh, an, a non-religious sinner to being a religious sinner. But then, boom, there came that moment, that instant, where God made it clear to me that he wanted to come and live in me. I had to be born again. And once that became clear to me, that, that, everything made sense at that moment. That's it. And so I went from being a religious person, in a sense, to having this radical uh, revolutionary thing happened where my life just changed. Prior to that, I was religious on Sunday because that was the church day. But I struggled all through the week with the parties and, you know, all go, keep going back into that stuff. And I, I could never make my way out of it. But you see, this is what Christianity is. It's, it's God coming and living in us. Paul said to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 27, he said, it, it's Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. And that's what Paul is saying here. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It's not about me living up to the law. No, what's happened is I'm dead to all of that, and now Christ is living in me And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So this is the Christian life. The life that I now live in the flesh, that's where we live. Of course, we come to Jesus, and we're still here. We're still in our natural bodies. We've been born again. We have a new nature, but we still have that old uh, nature that there's a conflict there. Paul will address that later in the epistle. But how do we live now? He says, we live by faith in the Son of God. That's how we live. The the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, again, I just want to keep reminding you of the context. Uh, The Galatians knew this. They accepted it. They understood it. They rejoiced in it. It was wonderful. The false teachers come along and said, oh, no, no, that's not right. That's not good. Here, you got to do this. You need these laws. There's Moses, and there's all of these different uh, rituals and things, and, you know, there's circumcision and all this, and you've got to have this. And, and the Galatians foolishly bought into it. Paul says, no. This is how you live the Christian life. I, the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So what does that look like? Three things. Number one, I live by faith in what Christ has done. See, that's what we do. We live by faith in what Christ has done. What did Christ do? Well, number one, Christ lived the perfect life, which I have not done. He lived the perfect life. He died because I didn't live the perfect life. So he died for me. And he rose from the dead, and he sent his spirit, who now has made me spiritually alive so I can live the way he wants me to live. So I live by faith in that. I live by faith in what Christ has done. And you see, faith is is the key in all of this. And faith means that you believe this. 
you personally believe this. You believe that Christ died for you. You believe that Christ paid the penalty for your sin. You believe that he lived the life you couldn't live and he died the death that you had to die. And as you believe that, then his spirit comes and lives in you. It's Christ in me. That's what he said. And so we live, first of all, by faith in what he's done. But secondly, we live by faith in what he is doing. Because this Christ that we believe in, this Son of God, he's the living Son of God, and he's, he's doing things right now. And we live by faith in what he's doing. And again, you see the, the, the nature of this in comparison. What we're talking about here is a living relationship with a person. And the contrast here is between subjection to a system or a relationship with a person. These are the two things. And that's, that's, the, that's the difference between religion and the gospel. All religion is subjection to a system, some system, an impersonal system. The gospel is a loving relationship with a person. So they had a, a, the Galatians had a loving relationship with a person, but they were trading that in for subjection to a religious system. That's why Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who, who deceived you? Who cast a spell on you that you would do something like this? That you would, like, like God said to the prophet Jeremiah to Israel, he said, you know, how is it that you have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and you've carved out for yourself cisterns that they're broken and they can't hold water? That's, that's the same idea. And so we live by faith in the Son of God by faith in what he's presently doing. What is he doing? Well, he lives in me and he gives me power to live for him. You see, all of this is very supernatural. This is, you know, we're, we're not talking just uh, like, you know, something that we can conjure up, something that we can work up as human beings, a system that we can say, okay, well, here it is. Just follow these five steps and everything will get better. We're talking about an encounter. We're talking about real power through the living Christ who's in us. You see, it, it's, I'm just trying to get this, it's, it's not going to church. We come to church to be built up in our most holy faith and to be an encouragement and a blessing to others and all of those kinds of things. But, you know, the, the thinking for so many people is you go to church to win favor with God. That'll hopefully, one day, it'll all balance out and you'll end up being in heaven. But no, that's not it. God is doing something. Paul says, we live by faith that he is, he lives in me and he gives me power. We live by faith in that he gives us understanding so that we can know his word and we can know his will. And so when you have a a living faith in Jesus, when you come to that place of recognizing him as the living savior and you receive him into your life, you have a living faith and, and this book, the Bible, suddenly this thing comes alive to you. Suddenly you find that this book is talking to you. This book is speaking to you. This book is, is uh, penetrating to the depths of your heart. 
And it's renewing your mind and it's giving you insight and understanding to things that you never even knew before at all. The Spirit of God is at work in that way. And then God gives us wisdom to apply His Word. You see, this is the the Son of God. This is what He does. He shows us the application of His Word in our lives. And then He supplies us with strength to obey His Word. You know, I was talking to uh, a person recently, and they were came in to talk about some issues in their life, some family issues and so forth. And um, they, they were talking about how in the beginning of these, these issues, lawsuits and things like that, one of them was saying, you know, that at that point they were just, you know, they were going through the motions, going to church, you know, kind of, yeah, I'm a Christian, but no transformation, no change, no real difference in their life. They're just kind of trudging along attending church, but then these circumstances arose which kind of, you know, served to force them in a direction to really start to take this, this thing of, of faith in Jesus more seriously, and then they just went on to say how their life is, is just completely transformed. So this, this trial that's been very, very unpleasant for them, there's, there's two sides to it. There's the unpleasant component, but then there's the other side where it was used by God to, to drive them to seek Jesus, and now there's this wonderful transformation, this wonderful fruit that's happening because that's what happens. Living by faith in the Son of God, He is doing things in our life. But then I want you to see thirdly, first of all, faith in what He's done, secondly, faith in what He's doing, but thirdly, faith in who He is. See, Paul says, the life that I live in the flesh, I, I live by faith in the Son of God, in who he is. Who is the Son of God? Well, of course, we're talking about Jesus. But what does the Son of God mean? You know, some people mistakenly think that the Son of God means that, you know, he's kind of like God, but he's lower than God because he's God's son. Because we, we sort of think of that just from our understanding. You know, we think a father greater than the son. But in the biblical picture, the, the Son of God is really, uh, it's a claim to equality with God. And you could even just change the words around, and maybe it'll be even easier to comprehend it. If you refer to Jesus as God the Son, then it clears it all up because you recognize He is God. So Paul says he lives by faith in the Son of God, meaning he lives by, by faith in the one who created all things, the one who Um, has all wisdom and might and power and and all of those things. The one who came to dwell among us. That's who his faith is in. His faith is in God, the living God. We sang, uh, hail incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That's God with us. So he says, I live by uh, the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God. His faith is in the living God. But then he says, the living God who loved me. And this great and awesome God, this living God, this creator of everything, this God who knows all things, and this God who has all power, and this God who is everywhere present, and this God who is so holy that no person could ever uh, come into his presence without him making 
uh, a way for that to happen without us being consumed. This is the one who loves us. You know, I was thinking about this because this is really an expression of God's grace. Because if you think about yourself, if you think about who you were and where you were, perhaps, and what you were doing, it doesn't really make any sense that God loved you. When I think about my my complete disregard for God, when I think about my total indifference to anything that had anything to do with him, when I think even about the, the occasions when I used his name in vain or when I mocked people who believed in him or, you know, those kinds of things, when I think about that, I would not have even imagined that at that time God was loving me. I, if I just looked at it purely from the way I see things, I would think that, well, God, no, God doesn't love me. He shouldn't love me. I'm a rebel against him. But the truth is, remember who's writing this, Paul. Paul, the guy who was dead set on destroying the Christian church. Paul, who was going from place to place, harassing and persecuting and arresting and prosecuting Christians. Paul says, the Son of God loved me. Even though he knew where I was. Again, in the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, God talks about Israel, and he says, he, he's reminding them of their, of their past. He had taken them and exalted them to a glorious position, and they had walked away from that. But he's reminding them, you know, when I found you, you were like an aborted child that had been thrown to the side of the road. And they're wallowing in all of the the filth and the blood and everything else. And God says, and I came and I had compassion on you. And I took you and I washed you and cleansed you and clothed you and blessed you. And you know, that's exactly what it was like with all of us too. Because the Son of God loved us. And he looked upon us with grace and mercy And then Paul says, he gave himself for me. See, this is who he's talking about. He lives by faith in the Son of God who loved me. God loves you. How much does he love you? Well, he gave himself for us. He gave himself a sacrifice. That's how much he loves us. And as Jesus would remind us himself, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And that's what he did. He laid down his life for us. He sacrificed for us. So, All of this brings us to this point. And this is what Paul is saying. Being a Christian is not about living meticulously according to a list of rules. It's about loving the one who loved us. which compels us to live to want to please him above all else. You see, the Christian life is based on the foundation of love. And there's no law, never has been any law, that could command the devotion of anybody in any way compared to how love commands that devotion. You see, love is the greatest thing. That's why St. Augustine, when asked the question about, 
you know, sort of how do you live the Christian life or what do you do in living the Christian life, he summed it up like this. He said, this is it. Love God and do what you please. Wow, what? Love God and do what you please? Think about it. If you love God, what you please to do will be those things that please him. Right? That's what love does. Love, love wants to please. You see, the problem is, it's always been this problem. It was the problem in Galatia. They, the people think that if you don't keep people under laws, they're going to go wild. They're going to go crazy. They're going to go sin. God knows that laws don't prevent that. <coughs> The whole history of Israel proves that. (coughs) They had the law. Never prevented them from sinning. And again, in Romans 6 and 7, Paul tells them that (coughs) we are so twisted in our sinful nature, not only does the law not prevent us from sinning, it actually provokes us to sin. Because when my sinful nature sees a law, my sinful nature says, I'm going to revolt against that. I'm going to, that, that law incites rebellion in me. Or a law that tells me not to do something, my flesh can take it and go, oh, I'm not supposed to do that. Ooh, I want to try that. That's how twisted we are by nature. When I was younger, I was... Uh, Pretty much always a rebel. And, you know, I would, I would often do things just because I was told not to do them. So if I saw a no trespassing sign, you could be sure where I was going to go. I was going to go right over there and just cross that border that I wasn't supposed to cross. If I was told not to do something, well, you could pretty much be sure that that's what I was going to do. That's human nature. So, God knows that the law, the law is law. The, 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 the laws, whatever they might be, the, these are not the thing that's going to bring us to where God wants us to be. No, love is the thing. And so Jesus comes and he loves us. And he shows us this love that is so deep, that is so amazing. And Paul would say in another place, he said, you see, it's the love of Christ that compels me. I do what I do. I live the way I live because of the love of Christ. He's not, at this point, he's not talking about his love for Christ. He's talking about Christ's love for him. When I realize how much Christ loves me, what else can I do except love him in return? What else can I do than, than seek to please him? And you see, this is, the new, this is the, the new covenant. This is the motivating factor. And when this is the thing that's, that's underlying everything, when this is the thing that is motivating us, it changes the whole dynamic. It changes the whole atmosphere. You know, you've heard this before. It's, you know, people say this in, in the current uh, sort of cultural conversation. Uh, People have written books and made these kinds of claims. You know, religion ruins everything. You know, 
they're more right than you might think. Sometimes we hear that and we get offended. Wait, what do they mean religion? No, religion is good. No, you know what? Religion isn't good generally. Because you know what religion is? It's sinful men trying to live according to rules that they can't live up to. And they either recognize that they fall short, so they live in constant guilt and condemnation and so forth about it, or they think that they have attained it, and then they live self-righteously, and then they oppress everybody else who doesn't live up to the standard that they want them to live up to. They're right. Religion does ruin stuff. But here's the key. We're not talking about religion here. We're talking about a relationship. Remember the contrast. Subjection to a system or relationship with a person, a loving relationship with a person. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, he put it this way, and I want to close with this. In that great hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross, on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And then there's a line there where he says this, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Love God and do as you please. When I realize this love of God that's so amazing, this love of God that is, it's just, it, it's, it's almost in comprehensible this love that God has for me when I realize this and as I experience this this love that is so amazing so divine what is my response it demands my soul it demands my life it demands my all how can I resist this kind of love that's the relationship that God has made with us through Christ. That's the relationship that the Galatians early on enjoyed. That's the relationship that they moved away from for subjection to a system. And this is the relationship Paul is calling them back to by reminding them that this is what Christianity really is. I have been crucified with Christ. The law, keep it out of the picture, has nothing to do with this No, Christ is living in me. And the life that I'm living now, it's by active faith, trusting in the Son of God who has done for me, who is doing for me, and ultimately who loves me. And let that love of Jesus fill your heart. And let that love of Jesus for you be the motivating factor. Because, you know, It's true, right? When you love somebody, what do you want to do? You want to please them. You want to please them. You want to do the thing that will bless them. And that's how God wants it to be between us and him. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us not to drift toward subjection to a system, any system, one that somebody else invented or one that we've just invented in our own heads. 
Help us, Lord, not to drift toward that, but help us to stand firm in this relationship, this loving relationship, this personal, intimate thing that you have provided for us through your death on the cross and us dying with you to the law and to sin. And Lord, you rose from the dead and you've raised us up too and given us a new life and a loving relationship with yourself. So help us, Lord, to just bask in that love. And as we realize how great and glorious it is that we would just more and more surrender our soul, our life, our all to you. Lord, that's our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.